0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and open to Acts chapter 17 because that's going to be the foundation of where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We are going to be looking at various other texts in Scripture and looking around at what the Bible says about God our Savior. Pastor Patrick last week just finished his mini series on. the idols of the heart, and we talked about fleeing from idolatry, running the race with endurance, casting aside every encumbrance that wants to entangle us, that he he introed that whole series with from Hebrews, and then we talked about the idols of money, the idols of love, the idols of glory, and those are things that, that we as believers really need to watch out for. John Calvin said that within the heart of every believer is an idol factory, an idol factory. He also said, man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. This was one of the foremost reformers of the 17th century That understood, 16th and 17th century that understood how bad idolatry could be within the church. A man by the name of Count Zinzendorf of the Moravians once said, I have one passion, and it is he and he alone. He desired nothing more than to glorify God. Christ was everything to him. He went on to say, the world is the field, and the field is the world, and henceforth that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. And that's why we're here at Christ Bible Church, because we want to see and savor Jesus Christ, because we want to know Christ, because we want to make Christ known. He also said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. This was a man that understood his role in the world, in God's kingdom plan. It wasn't for glory. It wasn't for honor. It wasn't for acclaim. It wasn't for fame. It was for the fame of God's name. It was for the fame of Christ. Preachers have a unique task. We also have unique um, temptations to glorify ourselves in this sacred desk at the pulpit. And that's not what we're here about. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what Pastor Patrick comes into this pulpit week in and week out for. We want to make Christ known. We want to show you Christ. And today we're going to do just that. We are going to look at God the Savior. This is part two of my series that I started back in November of last year of God of the gospel, and I didn't get through my whole sermon because I had way too many notes. Today, not as many. So we should be able to get through everything today. We left off last time where Paul was in Athens. He saw the physical manifestation of the idolatry of the Greeks as he walked around the marketplace, as he interacted with the people, as he spoke with them. He saw various and sundry idols of all kinds, stone, wood, ivory, Carved out to all kinds of gods. And what was his reaction to that? He was provoked. He was provoked to his heart. He couldn't take it. He saw all of this idolatry all around him, and he began to proclaim Christ in the marketplace. Look in Acts 17. We see Acts um, 17 records... The second missionary journey of Paul, it began uh, back in Acts 15 at the end of verse 15, where Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit all these churches. And Paul wanted, or Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, and Paul said, no way, no how. They split, and what happened from that split? Twice as many people got reached for Christ. What was John Mark like to Paul in later in life? He was a valuable servant of the lord he was valuable to paul in ministry so even out of that rough beginning you have this second missionary journey with paul and silas and they go on to all of these cities where they go to thessalonica in chapter 17 and what happens in thessalonica the jews get railed up against paul and they don't like him they don't want him there and they ultimately kick him out of the city so he gets out of thessalonica he goes on to berea he does exactly the same thing in Berea that he did in Thessalonica. He wants to proclaim Christ to the Jews. He wants the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, to hear about their Messiah. Some believe. Why? Because they were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, and they checked the Scripture. They checked what Paul was saying against what they knew to be true in Scripture. And they believed. Well, when the Jews in Thessalonica heard about that, what did they do? They came down and they said, "Uh uh-uh, no way, Paul, you got to get out of here. So the believers, the brothers and sisters in Berea, got Paul out of Berea and sent him on to Athens. Last time we asked several questions about this text. What did Paul say? Why did he say it that way? And then ultimately, why did they react the way they did in the Areopagus? Why did they laugh him out of the Areopagus, laugh him off of Mars Hill? Well, it was because Paul revealed to them God as creator, sustainer, and savior. Remember last time, God revealed as creator. We looked at three aspects of God's act of creating from verses 22 to 24 of Acts 17. He was the omnipotent God. He is the sovereign God, and he is immense beyond his own creation. And we saw how those three aspects of God led into his sustaining of his creation in verses 25 and 26. And we saw three ways in which God sustained his creation. He's independent of it so he can take care of it. He's eternally controlling it providentially, and he is the ruler over it. Nothing happens here on earth that he does not allow. God created one race of people, the human race. And he is in full control over it. And that leads us to our text this morning in Acts chapter 17, verses 27 to 31, where we're going to see God, our Savior, here. Luke writes in Acts 17, 27, he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like silver, gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This morning, today, I'd like to show you three roles of God in saving sinners. Three roles of God in saving sinners. Role number one. The three roles of God our Savior. Role number one. He is a patient father. God is a patient father. And we see this in verses 27 to 29. He has patience with and shows mercy toward his children. In making this statement in verses 27 through 29, Paul, the Jewish rabbi, evangelist, minister of the gospel, becomes Paul the philosopher. Remember where he is. He is in this Areopagus. He's in this area where all of the philosophers of Athens would sit and teach and talk about something new. The Stoics were there. The Epicureans were there. These are the people that just wanted to know and learn about metaphysics, the meaning of life, what's going on. This is probably one of the most profound sentences in the Bible because Paul here in this sentence, does away with the notion of polytheism and addresses the three greatest intellectual issues of both the ancient world and of today. What are they? What is the source of life? How did I get here? How does it happen? Or, Or should I say, why am I here? How did I get here? And what keeps it going? What is the purpose of my life? That's what people all over the place are asking even today. Why am I here? How did I get here? And and what's my purpose for being here? Paul says the source of life is from God alone. It happens because it's grounded in God alone. And it keeps going because it is sustained by God alone. Everything goes back to God. God. Everything goes back to the God of the gospel, the God of scriptures, that he reveals to them their their statue of an unknown God. He wants to say, this is the God that you don't know, the God of the Bible. This is completely contrary and countercultural to everything they would have believed, especially about their own gods. You guys have probably read Greek mythology or Roman mythology. What are the gods like? They're vindictive. They're capricious. They're jealous. They're selfish. They're narcissistic. But God reveals himself to us through his word, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and it's completely the opposite of what these Greeks believed about God. What does God say about himself? Moses asked that question of God. God, show me your glory. God said to Moses, Nobody can see my face and live, but I will do this for you. I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll cover you with my hand, and I'll pass by you, and I'll declare my glory to you. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7 say this. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and declared... The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That is who God is. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God who saves. The idea of groping here in this verse is an interesting idea. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it very much comes from Homeric literature. You guys read Homer, right? Anybody here read the Iliad, the Odyssey, right? Back in the Odyssey, these Athenians would have been very familiar with this story. And in the Odyssey, you guys remember Odysseus, the the hero, he gets lost. He gets on this island. They're looking for provisions, and ultimately the cyclops captures them. Remember that? The cyclops has one eye. So how are we going to get past the cyclops? He's guarding the, the mouth of the cave. We can't get past him. Somehow, Odysseus manages to get him drunk, sharpens a stick, and then pokes his eye out. Well, now this blind cyclops, what is he doing to try and get these these uh, men that are with odysseus he's groping around right making just blind stabs at anything and everything that he hears or thinks is moving that's the picture that these athenians would have had in their head as paul is talking about groping that they would seek god if they perhaps they might grope for him paul's point is this in our sin we are as blind as the blinded Cyclops. Nevertheless, because creation is still there, we have an obligation to feel after God and find him, even though we cannot see him. God himself came forth to meet us and shows us himself through creation and his word, both the inspired word and the incarnate word. So we cannot claim ignorance as an excuse for, For not knowing God. Can't do it. But isn't it also reasonable to think that God would send some special revelation to those in the form of the gospel, to those who actively seek him because of his natural revelation in creation? This is not to say that they are saving themselves or that they are their own gospel. Because there's a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, human responsibility. We have the responsibility to seek after God because of what we see in creation. God will save. And just like what we heard in the the missionary this morning, listening to that video, in Albania, as a closed country under the Ottoman Turks, and then ultimately under the communists, they had no God. They had no churches. They embraced atheism. And they've probably lost an entire generation or two or three to that reality because they just deny God altogether. Because they've been so oppressed and suppressed. And you heard him say also that God is at work in Albania. He is saving those that seek him. And there are churches being planted there. So what do you think Paul had in mind when he made this statement? How about Deuteronomy 4, verses 29 to 31? Moses wrote, But from there, God speaking, from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The psalmist in Psalm 145, David writes this in verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And lastly, Jeremiah 23, 23. Jeremiah writes, quoting God, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? The answer to that question yes. Yes, you are. You are a God who is near. You are not far off. We're going to be studying the book of Colossians in our home Bible studies, and there. Paul writes about creation and existence, and he talks about God and how God is in creation. He created everything that we see, and he also sustains it. The creator God has not put us here and then walked away. He is intimately involved in every aspect of our life, and he wants us to be involved in his. Paul also, back in Acts 17 now, He makes a quote here in verse 28. It's very interesting. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we also are his children. So here's Paul quoting a secular Greek pagan poet, and it is now inscribed in inspired, inerrant scripture. How can that be? What's going on here? Essentially, what Paul is doing in Athens to these philosophers is hitting them with their own philosophy. And God inspired Paul to say those words and say, remember, there is some truth even in their own writings. And God then wrests control out of the hands of Zeus, their god, their head god of the pantheon, And places it firmly in the hands of the one true God, Yahweh, that Paul is revealing to them. And he does this in order to shame the men of Athens for thinking incorrectly about God. He uses their own writings, their own words against them. That's contextualizing in the gospel. Using their words against them. Even your own writings, even your own poets, even your own prophets... Understand that there is a God who created. There is a God in the universe who is the creator God, and he is one. There is only one. So what does all that mean to us? So what? Paul, that was almost 2,000 years ago. Second Corinthians 5, verses 20 through chapter 6. I'm going to read through chapter 6, verse 4. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. This is very applicable to us here today in Northridge as Christ Bible Church in a church plant. Listen to this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. are we not? Aren't we ambassadors for Christ here in Northridge? We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him and working together with him, working with Christ, sharing the gospel in Christ, we have also urged you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. That's the so what. We have a role here in Christ Bible Church to minister to our neighbors here in Northridge, Granada Hills, North Hills, Van Nuys, Lake Balboa, Sherwood Forest, wherever we live. To let them know Christ, that we, the way we know Christ. Peter also says something a little differently about God in Second Peter, writing this right before his own execution. He says this about God. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is going to keep his promises. Time has no meaning to God. It is going to happen. God put us here for a reason, and we may want to see this church explode in growth phenomenally, instantaneously, but it's not going to happen that way. Why? Because that's not God's plan. That's not God's timing. We have to be faithful in the work that God has put us here to do, to share Christ, to make God of the gospel known, to make sure that God our Savior is exalted, and that he is shown <clears throat> as a patient father. Even Peter here says, he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you know why the Lord has not returned yet? As bad as the world is getting, you know why the Lord has not returned yet? Because all who are going to repent have not repented yet. We still have work to do, beloved. God is not only a patient father. He is also, a second thing, his second role, he is the holy and righteous forgiver. Role number two, God is the holy and righteous forgiver. And we see this in verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He is the justifier of all who repent and call upon his name. He will justify. He will declare you not guilty. The gavel hits. You are declared not guilty. Forgiven and that is what God does they understood this when paul they understood this when peter was preaching at pentecost in acts chapter 2 when peter preached that amazing sermon they were cut to the quick and what did they say what must we do and what did he say repent turn to god and be reconciled to christ so how does justification relate to repentance If I'm going to turn and walk away from my sin and turn toward Christ, how does that justify me? Look at Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. Great book on the gospel. Paul writes, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those... Alive from the dead, that you are members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Be killing sin. John Owen said it best, be killing sin, lest sin be killing you. That's how justification and repentance work. We turn away from our sin, we turn toward Christ, we walk toward Christ, but we still have to kill that sin behind us. We still have to, what's the military term? Check your six. You've still got to take care of that sin. You've got to kill it. Actively kill it. I think the greatest Old Testament illustration of this is David. Do you guys remember what happened to David? All the kings are out at war. David's not. He's back at home. He decides to go for a walk on his balcony. He looks down, sees a beautiful young woman bathing Decides, hmm, that looks interesting. Sends for her. She comes to him. They enjoy a night of intimacy. Later on, he reveals, she reveals to him, I'm pregnant. He says, uh-oh, that's a problem. Calls her husband home, Uriah, one of his mighty men, one of his closest allies, one of his bodyguards, if you will. And what does he do with Uriah? He tries to get Uriah drunk to go to Bathsheba won't do it. How can I go to her and enjoy my wife when my men are in the field? So finally, he ultimately ends up having Uriah murdered. So you have an adulterating murderer sitting on the throne of Israel who is also called a man after God's own heart. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait, what? How is that possible? Look at Psalm 51 turn to Psalm 51 really quick because it is possible do you remember what happened when Nathan the prophet came to David he he shared with him a parable about a young, a man who had a young sheep that raised it like his own another rich man had many sheep and the rich man had a traveler visitor visiting him and he took the poor man's one sheep and slaughtered it and baked a feast for the rich man for the rich man's friend what should happen to the rich man What did David say? Kill him. Just like he did to that sheep, that's what he should do. And Nathan said, you are that rich man. And David instantly understood his sin and the gravity of it. And he repented. He repented. And out of that, he wrote Psalm 51. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And he writes this Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. He confessed his sin. He repented of his sin. He turned from his sin and he clung to the love of his father. And that's the kind of father that we have. One who will forgive us. What does John tell us in 1 John? Confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the kind of God that He is. Holy and righteous, He is a forgiver. He forgives us of our sins and justifies us. David was also able to write Psalm 32, another psalm of David. And in verses 1 through 2, He wrote this how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit He understood that forgiveness and he embraced that forgiveness and he sought to pursue God after that We are all guilty We are all guilty before God, and yet God wants to forgive us. Paul in Romans just does such an amazing job of explaining the gospel to us from our depravity to God's love for us to his justice, his justification. Turn to Romans 3 real quick. We're going to spend a little time walking very quickly through this passage in Romans 3. This is a passage that talks about the depravity of man, and we see it all around us. We see it in in a man like Brian Williams, who has definitely succumbed to the idol of glory in his own heart. Being the nightly news anchor on NBC Nightly News, national news anchor, wasn't enough. He had to lie about his experiences in Afghanistan to make his glory even greater. That's depravity at work. That is depravity at work. We are all depraved, and yet there is justification available for us. Look at Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. We're going to see the indictment here. Here's the the indictment that we are under. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The Bible exposes the heart of man to himself. But merely knowing the facts doesn't do us any good. Doesn't do us any good. Knowing that we're bad, that we're sinners, doesn't do us any good. We need something else. We need justification. Next, in verse 21, we see the witnesses. Verse 21. Now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The saving righteousness of God is taught in the Old Testament and then is more clearly taught in the gospel that Paul wants to get to here. The witnesses are the law and the prophets. The indictment is we are definitely in need of a savior. So, who are the recipients of this? Verse 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who is able to receive God's justification? All who believe. What is the source of that justification? Verses 24 and 25. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God publicly, displayed publicly, as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice that would satisfy his wrath, in, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The saving righteousness of God comes only from and only through the death of Jesus Christ as our propitiation. He was the satisfaction He was God's sacrifice that satisfied his own wrath. God required a perfect sacrifice. God provided that perfect sacrifice. God accepted that perfect sacrifice. That is God our Savior. He is just. He is right. He is the justifier of all who repent on his name. You want proof? Look at verse 26 again. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This revealed righteousness of God proves that God is right to rescue guilty people. God is right to do this, and he does it perfectly. God puts people right with him only through Jesus. That's the only way. There is no other way. We cannot put ourselves right. There is no possible way that we can earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. We can't buy it. We're not going to get it apart from Jesus. And it was because Jesus Christ paid the penalty on that cross for sin, He died for sinners. We want to expound. We want to reveal the foundation and the result. We want to make known that Jesus Christ is God's satisfaction. And he purchased us with his blood. And this proves that God is fair to forgive. It doesn't seem fair, but it is. So what are the implications of this? What's what's the implication? Verse 28, 27 and 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. There is nothing that i can say that i have done to contribute to my salvation aside from sin and i'm going to boast about that i don't think so the implication is that there is no room for boasting there's no room for boasting about my salvation there's also a restriction to this justification And this is where things get kind of sticky and it rubs people the wrong way. They don't like this. The restriction is found in verses 29 to 31. Is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The restriction is that there is one God, and that means there is one source or one means of justification. Maybe we should insert some different words in here. Is God the God of the Jews only? How about this? Is God the God of Southern Californians only? Is God the God of America only? only we don't have an exclusive claim to god god is god god of the universe and he is right to save muslim terrorists who have had people blown up in marketplaces he is right to do that and that is just I don't get it. I don't, I don't see how that can happen. But God does. And that is the restriction. Because there is one God, there is one means of justification. And it is through Jesus Christ. Faith in the Messiah. Paul then goes on to illustrate this in, in chapter 4 with Abraham. Abraham was justified by grace alone. And as a matter of fact, all the Old Testament believers were justified by grace alone. That great exchange, my sin for Christ's righteousness. Abraham saw the Messiah. He saw the days of the Messiah. He looked forward to the days of the Messiah. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and on and on it goes. God is a patient father. He's also the holy and righteous forgiver. And thirdly, his third role, he is also a just judge. He is a just judge. Back in Acts 17, look at verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He will judge the quick and the dead on the last day. All of the living, all of the dead will go before God and stand before him to be judged. Paul's reference here to divine judgment is a warning to these people to repent. Repent and turn to God. Avoid a day that leads to condemnation, doom, and destruction. We will be there standing before God in judgment as well. But our judgment is not a judgment of condemnation. It will be a judgment of commendation. The judgment of well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your Lord's rest. We will see God. And we will stand in judgment before Jesus Christ. To recognize that God exists and even understand who he is will not lead to a saving knowledge of him, though. That comes only from an understanding of that special revelation. Knowing and believing qualifies us for hell. The demons know God. They know about Jesus. They even believe that he is the Messiah. That qualifies them for hell. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And that is what gets you into heaven. It is knowing him. It is believing in him. It is trusting in the saving work of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that exclusively gets you into heaven. That trust in the blood of Christ. Believing that he died on the cross. That he was buried and rose on the third day is what gets us in. Mental, intellectual, assent, agreement, belief, that's not enough. Not enough. How long have people lived in the church, heard the preaching of men like Steve Lawson, John MacArthur, Al Mohler, R.C. Sproul, and others, that will ultimately end up in hell with their belief. Because they didn't trust in Christ alone. They trusted in attendance at church. They trusted in their giving of tithes and offering. They trusted in their service as deacons. And Christ. That's not how it works. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus. And that's it. God will judge. And this message of judgment... Causes people to have one of two responses. One of two responses. You could be like Cornelius in Acts 10 when he hears the gospel message from Peter who confesses their sins and believes in Christ and repents and turns and and is baptized. Or you could be like Felix, Governor Felix. In Acts 24, who hardens their hearts and turns away from God completely. Those are the two reactions. On judgment day, God will judge the world in righteousness. Look at Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8 says this, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people's with equity he is a fair and just judge and he will judge in righteousness and his judgments are right and they are true and they are good psalm 96 verses 11 through 13 says this let the heavens be glad let the earth rejoice let the sea roar and all it contains Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. And you're you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with judgment? This is creation. Creation is longing for this as well. Look at the next verse. Verse 13. Before the Lord. They will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Not only are we going to be judged, but creation is going to be judged. And creation groans under the curse of sin. It cannot wait to be freed from the curse as well. Just as we are under the curse of sin and want to be freed, long to be freed. Creation longs to be freed. Paul again in Romans Romans 2 Verses 11 to 13 says this. There is no partiality with God. God doesn't play favorites. There is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Back in Acts 17, as Paul is moving on with his sermon on Mars Hill here, true to apostolic form, wherever he goes, wherever he preaches the gospel, just like Peter does, just like Philip does, he teaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can see this all over the book of Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 13, 17, 25, it's all over. In all of the different sermons in the book of Acts, you're going to see the resurrection preached. For the apostles, this doctrine is basic to the Christian faith. This resurrection doctrine is basic to the Christian faith and should be proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile. So here, Paul unapologetically introduces this cardinal doctrine and demonstrates that it is God's proof for appointing a man, namely Jesus Christ, to be the supreme judge of mankind and of creation. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus will sit on the judgment seat On the in the end days and judge all of creation. Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John. John 5, verses 22 through 27 says this. For not even the Father judges anyone. Did you hear that? For not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. There is coming a day when we will stand before the Lord in judgment. So in hearing these words, how did these people respond? How did they respond on Mars Hill, these Epicurean philosophers, these Stoic philosophers? Look at verses 32 and following. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There's your two responses. Hardening of hearts and belief. How will you respond To the reality that God is creator, sustainer, and savior. Hopefully, if you do not know Jesus Christ today and trust in him alone for salvation, you will repent and turn to him today. We have at least three reasons, even in this passage in Acts 17, three reasons given by Paul to repent. God has been patient, overlooking ignorance. But he's only going to be patient for a time. God commands repentance, which is good enough. That should be the only reason we need. But he gives one more. God has appointed a final day of reckoning when Jesus shall be the final judge. Will you continue to make God into what the thankless Secular humanists or atheistic evolutionists have made him to be puny, small, able to fit into your box. The preacher in Ecclesiastes writes this in Ecclesiastes 8, verses 16 and 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to seek the task which has been done in the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And that's exactly what's happened today in secular science, even within the realm of Christian science. You know, not Christian science, the religion or the cult or whatever it is, but Christians who are scientists, they're seeking and they're seeking and they're seeking. Some of them, though, have embraced the long ages. Some of them have embraced the secular scientists' uniformitarian thinking. They've embraced secularism and placed it fully on top of scripture and that's how they interpret the word of god rather than looking at what god says and believing it the other option will you give him the thanksgiving he is due humble yourself confess your sin seek forgiveness Repent of your pride and turn to God, your Savior. Just like we saw last week with Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 66, verse 2, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The only thing that matters is your view of the God of the gospel. Ultimately, the prophet, I mean the the preacher, Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, came to this conclusion. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is is this. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Because this applies to every every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden whether it is good or evil. That is God our Savior. As I was reading this week and just doing some more studying and and, uh, just some some more reading, I came across a blog um, that I look at probably every day. Tim Challies. I highly recommend him to you. Challies.com. And I want to read to you his blog from yesterday. I'm sorry from February 6th from Friday And we're going to close our service with this just listen to what he writes My time of prayer began today with a verse from Isaiah Right there on the very first card I saw was one of my favorite texts The Lord speaks to his people and assures them I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake And I will not remember your sins Isaiah 43:25. God looks at his sinning sinful people Reminds them that they are his and assures them that he loves and longs to extend his mercy to them This is the best kind of god The best kind of savior He is a god who acknowledges all that is wrong about us and is both willing and able to do something about it Imagine the god who is able to do something about our sin but unwilling He could blot out our transgressions he knows how it can be possible and he has the ability to make it happen, but he has chosen not to. And all of humanity will be lost. That is a God of pure and utter justice, perhaps. That is a God who treats us exactly as our sin deserves and who gives no less and no more. But that is a God who proves He has no capacity to display love and mercy or perhaps just has no desire to display love and mercy. That is not our God. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Isaiah 43, 2. Imagine the God who is willing to do something about our sin but unable. He loves his people and longs to blot out their sin and remember those sins no more, but he can't. He doesn't know how, or he doesn't have the ability. His justice far exceeds his mercy, or his desires far exceed his abilities. His longings go unfulfilled because there is no possible way for him to reconcile himself to sinful humanity. That, too, is a God of justice, but a God of hopeless and helpless justice, whose love goes unrequited and who for all of eternity will be unable to love or be loved. That is not our God. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. Isaiah 43, 11 and 12. Our God is able to save. Our God is willing to save. So he assures his people, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 1-3. That is our God. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. So much that you are our creator, our sustainer, and our savior. You made us to glorify you. You made us to seek after you. You made us to love everything about you. Thank you for making us and everything that we see. Thank you for keeping us in Christ for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from our sins by grace through faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross according to your holy word that you uttered in eternity past. And all of this, you did for your glory alone. And that glory we long to give to you, Lord. We thank you for this day that you've given us and we ask that you would be with us as we leave here that we might continue to glorify you and and praise your name and worship you The rest of our days. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.